Hey there, this is Larry, and I'm here with Armin. You're about to listen to a great episode. But before you do, we want to let you know that we're now podcasting over at the Bold Idea Podcast. That's right, and we're not adding any new episodes to Reinventure Me, but we think you're really going to like what we're doing on the Bold Idea Podcast. We're interviewing some great guests and packing ideas and inspiration to help you put your faith to work to bring your idea to life. So when you're done with this episode, go check it out at boldideapodcast.com. Episode 105 of the Reinventure Me podcast. Are you ready for a change? Maybe you feel a little complacent, under-challenged, or perhaps that you put your time in already. If so, it's time to disrupt yourself. Find your next great beginning. Welcome to the Reinventure Me podcast with your hosts, Larry Gates and Armin Asadi. Hi, and welcome to episode 105 of the Reinventure Me podcast. This is your co-host, Larry Gates. Along with Armin Asadi. And we are here to bring you another episode to talk about what's next in life, and we want to help you explore new ways to reinvent your life, your opportunities, and the ventures you were made to pursue, because this is what? The Reinventure Me Podcast. It is. <laughs> Good setup. <laughs> there we go. Yes. It's almost like it was scripted. <laughs> it wasn't. I promise. We're not that good. Hey, you'll find the episode notes for this show at reinventure.me slash 105. And we have a terrific guest in store today. Don't we, Armin? Yeah, we do. I'm actually just really upset that I didn't know about her prior to launching my first company in 2010. I'm just, this is a very, very upsetting situation yeah. for me. Yeah, where's she been, right? Yeah. All of our lives. Yeah. I could have used her been. 30 years ago. <laughs> what are you talking about? I'm just going to blame her. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. I always love when we have an opportunity to interview people who've really been speaking and writing about the stuff that we've been yammering about for over a hundred episodes. Right. You know, I read Whitney Johnson's book, Disrupt Yourself, this last year, and it was one of the Inc. Magazine's top 100 business books for 2015. And I can see why, because I read it right away and I thought, this is not just a business book. This is a personal transformation book. It, it certainly helps in the business setting, but I'll tell you what, it really is helpful in rethinking your next great beginning. And right. what's this podcast about, right? Yeah, the next great beginning. <laughs> it is. <laughs> and Whitney Johnson it drives corporate innovation through personal disruption. She's all over the place, getting people to rethink how they lead their lives and how they lead their businesses. As she's a contributor to HBR, Harvard Business Review. She's oh, a LinkedIn you. influencer. You don't get to that just by showing up. Showing up you know, yeah, yeah you got to really do some stuff. She's a co-founder of 40 Women Over 40 to Watch, was named one of Fortune's 55 women to follow on Twitter in 2014, and I'm one of her followers. You know? <laughs> <laughs> there we go, right? She's uh, formerly an institutional investor-ranked analyst, at Merrill Lynch and a former president and co-founder of a boutique investment firm with Harvard Business School's Clayton Christensen. And it's her work with him, or maybe I should say his work, about disruptive innovation that's fostered this whole idea sure. that she writes about in Disrupt Yourself. And she and her husband and their two children live in Lexington, Virginia. Whitney, welcome to the show. Thank you. I am delighted to be here. Well, we're thrilled to have you because you're like singing our song here about next great beginnings. And you have in your book, you talked about your own personal journey 
to where you're at today. And I don't know if most of our listeners would really appreciate the traveling that you took. I mean, their own life might seem a little bit random, but I think you make the point that there's a lot of things you start connecting the dots can turn into something really, truly remarkable. And I think that's what you demonstrate in your book, but you've also done it in your own life. Why don't we back up and just tell a story about how did you get to where you are? All right. Well, I, uh, I graduated from college in the late 80s. And after I graduated, my husband and I, he was getting his PhD in microbiology in New York at Columbia. And so as wives often do, I went with him and to New York. And once we got to New York, I needed to put food on the table, even though I was terrified to even be there. I would not have gone to New York on my own. I had grown up in the West and never been in a really large city. And um, decided, you know, food on the table, I have to get a job. I majored in music, so I decided that I was going to work on Wall Street. And, that makes sense. Um, music to yeah, Wall Street, complete, right? <laughs> exactly. Complete sense. And, you know, I went out to get a job, but because I had no connections and I had never set foot in a business course and I really had very little confidence in my sort of business chops and justifiably so, I started working as a secretary, working for a retail sales broker at Smith Barney in Midtown Manhattan. Well, one of the interesting things that happened is that it was a really exciting time to be on Wall Street. It was the era of liars poker and bonfire of the vanities and the working girl. And I just found myself getting swept up and quickly discovered that I didn't just want a job. I wanted to like work on Wall Street. Mm -hmm. And so I started taking these business courses at night. And then I had a boss who believed in me that allowed me to move up from a secretary to an investment banker. And if you've worked on Wall Street, you know that just doesn't happen. And then eventually took a step back to become an equity analyst. And then, as you mentioned earlier, I co-founded an investment firm with Clayton Christensen at the Harvard Business School. And then today I do speaking, advising, and writing on the topic. But I think the thing that I really discovered and, and sort of how we get to this notion of personal disruption is that while I was an equity analyst, I came across the ideas of disruptive innovation. And realize that they were helping me understand what was happening in the equity markets in Latin America with telecom specifically, and helped explain that phenomenon. But the more I read these ideas, and we can talk about these ideas specifically in a minute, but the more I read about these ideas, the more I realized that if I really wanted to get something done in life, that I was going to have to disrupt myself. Mm -hmm. And so so the, the sort of ongoing theme is, is that when I went to Wall Street, as a music major and started in through the secretarial side door, I was effectively a disruptor. And then again, when I left Wall Street to become an entrepreneur, again, I was a disruptor. And so there, it really helped me realize that disruption isn't just about products and services and companies and countries. It actually starts with the individual. Well, give a simple explanation about disruptive innovation that Clayton Christensen implies, you know, a pretty rigored view of that and a lot of analysis of it in his book, Innovator's Dilemma. But how would you describe it kind of in simple terms? And obviously, highly recommend that book. Yes, it's a great <laughs> Yeah, it's sort of formative for me. So a disruptive innovation distilled you know, to its essence is a low end or new market innovation that eventually upends an industry. And so you can think of how Amazon upended Barnes & Noble and Borders and how you see now you see Uber upending the taxi industry how you saw Toyota eventually upend the car industry or the, you know, the American car industry. So it's this low-end innovation that people look at and they think it's a silly little thing, but then it eventually 
gets more and more um, robust as a product or a service, then eventually upends the the incumbent in the marketplace. Yeah, Netflix and Blockbuster, right? Perfect example. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And so you've taken that concept. That's a business concept, and it's a good one to study if you're in business because you ought to be fearful of those kind of disruptions that can come your way as a business leader. But talk about how you made that pivot to really, I think, cleverly applying it to personal disruption. Talk about what that means at a personal level. Well, at a personal level, it means taking this notion of disruption and saying, okay, you can start at the low end, you climb climb to the top, and then if you're going to disrupt yourself as a company, then you do something like Apple did and you introduce the iPhone even when you've got you know, a, a computer. But as an individual, it's about starting at the bottom like I did as a secretary, climbing to the top, to the top of your game like I was in, as an equity analyst and saying, okay, it's time. I've got to do something else. I'm going to disrupt myself and then try something new and then start all over, starting at the bottom of the ladder, climbing to the top, and then repeat. The way I typically think about it is as sort of S-curve waves, which we can talk about in a minute, but you know, surfing a wave and then when you get to the top of the wave, realizing it's time because the wave is crested that it's time for you to catch a new wave. Yeah, you talk about S-curves a lot in your book, and I kind of imagine it in applied to careers that a bit like perhaps the Peter principle, right? You get to the your level of incompetence and you stay there. But so many people kind of get to their level of competence and they just get comfortable, right? And isn't that the essence of what you're saying is that might be the time when you really need to be catching another wave? Yes, exactly. So what the S-curve is, is it was developed by Everett M. Rogers or E.M. Rogers in 1962. And he he developed this and it's it's a mathematical formula that helps you understand how an innovation will be adopted. And what it basically says is if you can picture in your mind an S or if you picture in your mind in, you know a wave, at the bottom, you know that growth is going to be slow because you're just sort of at the base of the S. And then that helps you realize that if you're at the bottom and growth is going to be slow, that helps you avoid discouragement. And then as you put in the hours and hours of practice, think the 10,000 hour rule, you accelerate into hypergrowth. And that's when you start to get really competent and therefore you feel confident. And that's always the exciting part of that S curve because that's when all your neurons are firing. And then at the top of the curve, you're starting to approach mastery and you can do things very, very easily. But what happens is that your brain is now no longer enjoying the feel-good effects of learning. And so now at the top of the curve, you're not learning as much as you were. And so if you don't jump to a new curve, that plateau becomes a precipice because you start to get bored and you can actually precipitate your own demise. So now you're at the top of that wave and it's time for you to jump to a new wave. And my premise is, if you can learn to surf these S-curve waves of disruption in an era where disruption is actually accelerating, this is a skill set that you can have that you can bring to the table in managing your business as well as your life and your career. Yeah, now you've done, as you've described in your journey, you've probably ridden four or five of those waves by now. I think I lost track in all the changes that you've (laughs) done. But Talk about what were some of the signs, Whitney, that you decided you were starting to plateau. I know you didn't remain there, but but when you're at the top of that S-curve, there might be some of our listeners that are wondering, you know, I've kind of ridden this career and I'm not finding that I'm learning at the same rate that I used to learn at. And what are some of those signs that maybe you ought to be looking for another curve to ride? The question, how do you know? Well, 
I think one sort of empirical way that you can know is if you think about the 10,000 hour rule and you map it against the S curve and you work 40 hours a week, let's say, what it means is the first six months of your job, you're sort of at that low end, that first 10%, you're going to have no idea what you're doing. And that's when you come home every day from work and you go, oh, what did I do? Why did I take this job? I can't do this. Well, that also means then at the top of the curve, basically, again, 40 hours of work a week, you're somewhere around four to four and a half years you've hit saturation. And so that's one way to look at this is from a very sort of logical, if you've been in the same seat in the same role for four years, you're probably reaching mastery and it's time for you to think about jumping to a new curve. Another way that you can know is if you find yourself sort of somewhat bored, there's a bit of ennui, you feel like, ah, you know, it's just not as fun. It's not as exciting. I'm not learning as much. I have everybody coming to me asking me for help on how to do things. And you feel yourself kind of dialing it in a little bit. I think that's usually the biggest indication that it's time for you to try something new. And I think another way you can know is if there are a lot of people sort of underneath you that are nipping at your heels, wanting to try something new and to spread their wings a little bit, and they can't because you're there, then that also may be a sign that it's time for you to take on another stretch assignment as well so that you can be at the low end of the curve and then move back into that sweet spot. Yeah. Well, give an example of that. I mean, in the curves that you've followed, what was a, a time when you felt like, all right, that's my signal. It's time to move on. What what specifically happened for you in one? Pick one of those instances. Okay. Yeah. So when I was an equity analyst, I had now been an equity analyst for eight years, but during that time, it wasn't the same seat. So I had been a media analyst for like five years. So basically the top of the curve. And then I took on the entire telecom sector as well. So that required me to go to the bottom of a curve again. But then at the end of eight years, I found myself being able to do my job pretty easily. I mean, it's still hard, but I knew what I was doing. I'd reached the top of the scale in terms of what I could get paid. I reached the top, sort of the pinnacle in terms of the awards I was going to get. And I found myself getting kind of frustrated, like, there's got to be something else for me, like kind of feeling, you know, sort of the seven-year itch, like feeling Mm -hmm. a little bit antsy. And so I knew that at this point, if I stayed where I was, there was a piece of me that was going to start dialing it in. And so my work product was going to deteriorate somewhat, and I didn't want that to happen. And so that was a signal to me that, yeah, I could still collect the paycheck, but I was going to collect a paycheck for a job that I wasn't doing as well. And that did, that did not sit well with me. And so those were some different signals for me that it was time for me to move. And by the way, though, I would also mention... I think I'd also realized that I hit a glass ceiling. Like I had gone to one of my bosses and said, you know, I want to try something new. I'd like to see if there's other opportunities for me. And they were like, we like you right where you are. <laughs> yeah. That's another sign. Yeah, you get good when enough. you start getting that, we like you right where you are, <laughs> it may be a sign that it's time for you to try something new. Yeah. You know, Armin, we've talked about this in one of our other shows. I think what you're describing, Whitney, is the state of discontent that you can get into when you realize that you've kind of outgrown your pot. It's, yep. it's time to go to a, either a different pot or a bigger one, you know, right. and that's a great metaphor. Yeah. Yeah. You, you just need to say, I, if I'm going to keep growing, I have to change the soil, change the environment or get a bigger pot. So, I mean, right. you know, we got to go somewhere. Exactly. Exactly. So uh, Whitney, in your book, you mentioned seven variables that can affect our progress on the S curve. Can you touch on those a bit for us? Sure. So again, my view is, is that the fundamental unit of disruption is the individual. And so I've described these seven variables that help you move along that S curve. So if you picture the S curve in your mind, the first variable that I talk about is taking the right kinds of risks. And I talk about two kinds of risks. One is competitive risk and the other one is market risk. And 
competitive risk happens when you look at a market opportunity or you look at a job opportunity and you know exactly what it is. And because you know exactly what it is, it means that someone else has probably scoped it out. There's a kingpin and it's not you. So you know there are going to be customers for what you're trying to do, but you have to gauge if you can compete and win. And that's that's the competitive risk. The market risk, on the other hand, is you think that there's a need or you think there's a job that needs to be done, but you don't know if there's a market for it because there there isn't a market, at least at this point in time. And so you have to figure out if you can go there and you don't know if there is a market, but there's no competition either. And so if there's no competition and it turns out there is a market, then you're favored to own it because you were there first. And so that's the difference between you know, six times more successful is when you take on market versus competitive risk and revenue opportunity market versus competitive risk. So if you can be the guy that comes out with the pet rock or the Hulu Hulu hoop or something like that, that that has never existed before, right? Is that what you're talking about? I'll give you a really simple example. My friend has triplets and they wanted to earn some money. And so they set up this lemonade stand, but they didn't set up in front of their house where it was like friends and family or in front of a grocery store where they knew there were customers, but there was also competition. They just set up next to a football field after football practice on a hot summer day. And so again, there was no guarantee that there would be customers, but there was no competition. So when there were customers, these kids that were 11 years old made $75 in about 20 minutes. Mm. And this applies in business, but it also applies for us as individuals, meaning If you go and apply for a job that there's a posting on LinkedIn, you know there's a job out there, but there's probably going to be 50 other people that are vying for it. If instead you determine that there's a need not being met, that a company that you think is really interesting isn't meeting it, you scope it out, you figure out what the problem is and come up with a way of how you can solve it, then you're much more likely to get the job because you're the one who figured out what the job was in the first place. And there's only one candidate applying and that person's you. Yeah. And you make yourself distinctive. Armin and I talk about being, being the white squirrel. I mean, you're no different than any other squirrel other than you're white and Mm -hmm. that makes you stand out. And I think what you're talking about is the difference between market risk and competitive risk is with, with market risk, you're willing to stand out because at least you can try something. And I'm guessing that when you do that too, you get faster feedback than when you go against competitive risk. Is that true? Yes. Yes, exactly. You do get faster feedback because you're, you're in a place where people are going to say yay or nay. I mean, not always though. I mean, sometimes you're not going to get faster feedback, I think, because you don't know if there's a market. And so sometimes it might take a while to figure that out, which is why you need to create constraints, which is the point number three of so that some way to get feedback, either by limiting how much cash you're going to allocate to the experiment or limiting the time, you know, that you're allocating for yourself in terms of figuring this out. So that's where constraints become really important in terms of getting you the feedback you need to figure out if in fact you are taking market risk or this is just the wrong curve for you. Yeah, I think people think often about constraints or things that are limiting you, but frankly, they help accelerate good decision-making, don't they? They really do. They really do. They force you to rank order your priorities. So just to kind of work our ways through this here, the first one is taking the right risk. The second one is playing to your distinctive strengths. And then you just talked about embracing constraints. What's the fourth one? 
Yeah, the fourth one is battling entitlement. And battling entitlement is the belief that, you know, you exist or I exist, therefore I'm entitled. And we like to say that millennials are entitled, and some of them are, but the reality is not our mean. Nope, not me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> our mean is not. Um, but I don't know yet. I'll take your word for it. But we, Thanks, all, we all struggle with entitlement. All oh, of yeah. us. And in fact, the research says is the more successful you are, the more entitled you become because the more you think you deserve the success that you have. And uh-huh. so one of the things that I really try to tackle in this is to look at the different kinds of entitlement and then make the case for when you're in that sweet spot of the curve, right at the time that you need to be learning new things so you can get to the top of the curve is the time when you think, ah, I got it handled. I don't need to learn anything else. And so you've got to continually battle that entitlement. You know, I was just with my son yesterday and he mentioned that one of the guys that he knows chose not to be part of a time with some others that was kind of considered part of the job. Because, you know, in his words, he's paid his dues. And that's really what you're talking about, isn't it, Whitney? Yeah, it is. Because he may have paid his dues, but in order for him to continue to get things done and for them as a team to get things done, they have to have a collegial, collaborative relationship. Exactly. And that attitude is saying, you don't matter to me. Yeah. And that, that the communication just completely breaks down. Yeah. All right. So that's number four. What's that? What's that number okay. Five? Number five is that sometimes you have to step back in order to grow. And it seems somewhat counterintuitive. But if you think of things in terms of a net present value, you know, you dispense with cash in order to bank more cash in the future. If you're, you know, jumping off a diving board, you squat before you jump. And so stepping back can mean, you know, you, you take a break, you take a vacation. It can mean that you take a moment to reflect on what your strategy actually is. It can mean that you make a lateral or a backward move inside of your company or outside of your company. And sometimes you get pushed off the curve. Sometimes you get fired. Sometimes your business, you know, starts to go into a tailspin and you have to retrench and revisit. But the premise is, is that in order for you to be able to have a disruptive life, sometimes you have to step back in order to grow like I did when I left Merrill Lynch and became an entrepreneur. I got a great example of that, by the way. Please, uh, go There ahead. was a lady that worked with me at Cray and she was in charge of one of our big strategic programs with her partners. And she left Cray. And I think everybody was astonished. She left to go work retail at Barnes and Noble. Hmm. And I asked her about that. I said, well, what's going on? Why did you decide to do that? Cause she said, I want to go into retail management. There's no faster way to learn it than to get right down at the store level. And she hmm. had a kind of a strategy for working her way there, but she was like, I don't care what other people think about my career trajectory. I know where I want to go. And I'm willing to take a step back in order to grow. Hmm. I, I applaud that her for that. That is a great story. Was she able to accomplish what she You know, wanted? to be honest, Whitney, I've kind of lost track with her. So you got to get back to I know, her. right? LinkedIn, I Totally. LinkedIn. Totally. <laughs> yeah, now right. I want to know. Yeah, exactly. All right, I'll follow up with you. Uh, number yeah. number six then, what's that? Okay, the number six is to give failure its due. To recognize that failure is a part of the process. And I'm not talking about just like the, you know, celebrate failure, fail fast, that kind of thing. That certainly is part of it. But then also to recognize that sometimes we're going to have big, hairy, awful failures. And that it's important to grieve when that happens. But then we also have to ditch the shame around it and to be willing to say, okay, I'm not going to make this a referendum on me because then I can't learn what I need to learn. And so I, it's just exploring this idea of there is, when we're really invested in something, sometimes it just doesn't work. And to then get back on the horse and keep going, not only ask people to celebrate our failures, but be willing to celebrate the failures of others. So that's chapter six. And then number seven 
is to be driven by discovery. Because as you're looking for a yet-to-be-defined market, because you're looking at a market opportunity, you have to take a step forward, gather feedback, and adapt accordingly. And just understanding that 70% of all successful new businesses end up with a strategy different than the one they initially pursued. And so part of disrupting and part of you know going on this sort of interesting course is to be willing to be discovery driven and not be able to see the top of the curve from the bottom of the curve and sometimes not being able to see the bottom of the curve from the top. Yeah, I love that. I, I marked that in your book when I read it that about the 70% of all successful businesses doing something different. It made me think about my own educational. I got a degree in physics and I wonder how many people are doing what they got degrees in. You know, I, I bet it's maybe <laughs> You know, that number is higher than 70% of people that are actually in their field of study when they're in college. I just wondered if there was a correlation. I bet it, I, I bet it's really high. I mean, I know that for college, for college students, only 10% end up, you know, in the same major that they started yeah, with. Yeah, because so, I mean, at that age, how can you possibly really you know? You know, there, there, that, know, that's a time to experiment anyway. And I, I, as I think, their whole life is an experiment. Kind in of my experiment view. Whitney, what I'm curious about is out of the seven variables that you were talking about, which one of these do you find to be the most critical to develop? And are any of them linchpins? Hmm. That's a great question. I would say that battle entitlement is a linchpin. It's one of those things that can just bite us and we don't see it. But I think that one of the most critical is actually developing your distinctive strengths. And, and the reason I say that is that we all talk about playing to our strengths. But the fact is, is that we like to think of strengths as something that we worked really, really hard to learn. And usually our strength is something that is so reflexive. It's as natural as breathing. We don't recognize it. And mm-hmm. even importantly, because we don't recognize it and because it's easy for us, we don't value it. Yes, that's so that's so critical. And I've noticed that I might say something and I just assume that other people think the same way I do or have the right. same strengths I do. It's like, like you said, it's just breathing. It's just natural. So when you go back to your story, like how did you thread together what your distinctive strengths were? Was there some, some moment in time when you just, aha, I figured out something and it just bolted in for you? No, no, I think it's, it's not it's that really, easy, huh? It's, it's just not, <laughs> it's, it's really gradual. And I think that, you know, one of the things that I would say is that, you know, it's still happening for me. One of the things that I've found that I'm really good at is I can sit down with a person, you know, if you and I were to sit down one-on-one for an hour, I can like dissect who you are, come up with what direction I think you should be going, how to do it, like very, very strategically, like I can name your talent, if you will. Mm -hmm. And I'm really good at it. But I was always doing it sort of on the side here and there. And uh, several times over the course of the last probably five to seven years, my husband's been like, you're really good at that. You should do that. You should coach. And I was like, no, 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 no. It's not a big deal. Who cares? I don't value it. And finally, probably a year and a half ago, I finally started doing it. And I was just like, I didn't, I didn't want to do it because I didn't value it, even though I was amazingly good at it. So well, that's what I'm saying. It takes a while for us to not only acknowledge our strengths and then be willing to actually own them. I had the same experience with my wife. She said, Hey, Larry, you ought to be doing very much the same stuff that you're describing Whitney. And, and I'm like, well, everybody can do this. And she's like, no, <laughs> the number of people that I see that have no clue and can't figure it out for themselves is huge. Like, right. really? Okay. Right. Hey, Whitney, you wrote something in your book that I'm just fascinated by. I want to pull this thread for a second. You you mentioned a study by Gregory Miller from the University of British Columbia and Karsten Roche. Did I get that right? From Concordia University. 
I think so. Yeah. And you mentioned that if you are not pursuing the stuff you're made to pursue, that in this study, they showed there's an elevated level of the C-reactive protein. That stood out to me because my son is battling with high levels of C-reactive protein. He's got an autoimmune deficiency. And so it ba- basically the C-reactive protein means your body is fighting something. And Mm -hmm. the study seems to imply that if we're not doing the very thing we're supposed to be pursuing, it's, it's kind of literally killing us. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? That's fascinating. Yeah. And so basically what it means, and, and this is, I think a signal for you when you know, if you're on the wrong curve or the right curve is that's one of your signals. So right curve, you're taking the right kinds of risks. You're playing to your distinctive strengths. It might be hard but it's not frustrating. And I think there's a real difference. And I think it takes a while for us to figure this out. But if you really think about it, like you could be doing stuff that's really hard, but you're still invigorated by it. Yeah. But if you're doing stuff that's really frustrating, and this study I think really supports this, then it may not be the right curve for you. That's a great tip. So uh, Whitney, you're really good at detecting other people's distinctive strengths. But for someone who is not as self-aware as you, how would you recommend us trying to figure out what our strengths are? Is there any tools or anything that you would recommend? Yeah, I have a couple of questions that I think are worth asking and sort of reflecting on. One, for example, is what compliments do you get frequently that you you get them a lot? In fact, you get them so much you dismiss them, which is hard because you dismiss them, but pay attention to them. So that's one way because again, that is an indication of something that you do really naturally well. And it might even be that you think to yourself, oh, that's compliment again. You know, why can't they compliment me on that thing that I worked really hard to do? That typically is really pointing you in the direction of one of your strengths. Mm. Another tool is to look at what makes you feel strong. When I mean feel strong, like when you finish doing it, you feel invigorated. Like for you guys, you're probably doing these podcasts because they make you feel strong. You feel invigorated, inquisitive, successful. Now we get to meet great people like you. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, but that's one sign. And another way, another sort of hack for getting there is thinking about what's your go-to activity when you're feeling really stressed out. And I don't mean like you get sloshed or you eat a quart of Haagen-Dazs ice cream, but like, oh, I do that. you know, do you do <laughs> spreadsheets? Do you find yourself doing code? Do you make a sale? Do you play a game? Do you go to lunch with a colleague? Like we all have a go-to activity and maybe not email either, but whatever that go-to activity is, is something that restores order because it makes you feel strong. And so the trick is, is as you start to figure out what these strengths are, is then to say to yourself, okay, how do I make sure that in the course of my workday or in the course of running my business that I use this strength, not when I'm in a bind, but I use it deliberately. And I think that's the real trick is to, once you start to become aware of it, use it more deliberately. That's great. That's great. Well, we're getting close to the end of our show and I, I want to just leave a, with a couple things. I know you, your book is packed with all kinds of inspirational quotes, but I'm wondering in your, all the, all the waves that you've written, Whitney, has there been a quote that's been particularly inspiring to you as you've navigated your career? Yes. And you know what? It's actually not in this book. It's in my first book, but it's Winston Churchill. Never, 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 never give up. (laughs) I've actually flipped it on its head. And now this is my own quote, which is always, 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 always show up. Oh, I love that too. You know, when you say that, never, never, never give up, it reminds me of that that cartoon. I mean, maybe you've seen it with the bird eating the frog and the frog is choking the bird while it's being eaten by the bird. (laughs) Oh, no, I haven't. I'll email it to you. It's a great great cartoon. So 
our show listeners are used to getting a challenge from us in each of the shows. And I'm gonna, first of all, I'm going to challenge them to pick up your book and visit your website, and we'll have a link to your website on our show notes. But do you have another challenge for them to get started maybe thinking about disruption in their own life? Yeah, I would make it really simple and like building on what we just talked about a moment ago is to start really paying attention to the compliments that you're getting. Mm. And once you pay attention to those compliments, like write them down, even though they seem really pedestrian to you, write them down. And then once you write down those compliments, because it's going to be two or three that are pretty typical over and over again, ask yourself, am I bringing these compliments? Am I bringing these strengths? Am I bringing these superpowers to work? Am I bringing these superpowers to my relationships? And that would be my my take-home challenge to to the listeners today. That's great. So if someone wants to find you or get a hold of you or even learn more about you, where would be the best place to direct them to? Well, first of all, you can go to WhitneyJohnson.com. And if you're interested in being in touch every couple of weeks, you can email me at Whitney at WhitneyJohnson.com and say, sign me up for your newsletter. I try really hard to have good action-packed advice in the newsletter each week. And then you can also follow me on Twitter at Johnson Whitney. Yeah, because she is one of the top people to follow on Twitter. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I'm going there right now. And we're going to have all those links, in, including the Twitter link. We'll have that in the show notes at reinventure.me slash 105 because this is episode 105. And unfortunately, we're out of time. But leave a message for us on our show notes at reinventure.me slash 105 if you've got a comment about this show or leave a call at 612-314-5447. That is all the time that we have. So until next week, this is Larry Gates. Armin Asadi. And Whitney Johnson. Saying so long and thanks again, Whitney, for being a part of this show. You've been listening to the Reinventure Me podcast with your host, Larry Gates, and Armin Asadi.